programmatic SEO, how to deliver automated SEO at scale. Welcome to the Majestic SEO podcast and live stream. I'm your host, David Bain, and today we're talking programmatic SEO, specifically how to deliver automated SEO at scale. So let's get straight into introducing today's panel. So starting off with Anna. Hi, everyone. My name is Anna, and um, I'm the SEO lead at Sneak, the company that uh, delivers security for every developer. And I started my SEO career at Weeks in Israel, and now I'm based in London, and Sneak is my current employer. And I love the tagline there as well, the short descriptive um, word there describing the company. Let's see if everyone can do the same, be so succinct and descriptive at the same time. So uh, taking us up to our next panelist, Anne. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. My name's Anne Berlin. I am a technical SEO consultant at Lumar, formerly DeepCrawl. And I spend my days crawling websites with hundreds of millions or billions of URLs. Looking forward to this. Looking forward to it as well. These 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 brand changes, it's uh, getting used to it as an SEO. You spend about 10 years refer referring to these uh, wonderful tech tools as something specific, then uh, they disappear. But I'm sure there's a, a logical reason behind it. Um, so thanks so much for joining us, Anne. And next up, Marty. I'm Marty Oberstein. I am the head of SEO branding at Wix. I'm also the host of the Superstop podcast. And I spend most of my time when I'm not BSing in a podcast uh, talking about how what Wix does for SEO and how to improve your Wix, your Wix websites from an SEO point of view to all sorts of users for all sorts of reasons. Your Wix website or uh, your Wix website? That's a bit of a tongue your twister Wix, for you. It's a tongue twister. <laughs> I say it in the mirror every morning, Wix website, Wix website. Thanks so much for joining us, Morty. And last but not least is Kevin. I'm trying to get over Morty's jokes. <laughs> uh, just kidding. I'm Kevin. Uh, I'm a growth advisor to companies like Nextdoor, Snapchat, Finder, Ramp and others. I've uh, been in the space for the last uh, 12, 13 uh, years and still love every day. Uh, before going out as an independent advisor, I uh, led SEO and growth at Shopify, G2 and Atlassian. Super panel there, as uh, you can see, as you can hear. Let's stick with Kevin for the first question. So Kevin, how would you define programmatic SEO? It's a fantastic question. Uh, my definition, and I'd love to hear you know uh, others as well. Not saying mine is perfect, but my definition is the the systematic creation of templated pages. Right, uh, the couple of things that distinguish programmatic SEO from other types of SEO in my mind. The the first and foremost is that most pages follow the same structure, and it makes them incredibly attractive from an optimization and testing perspective because they're so similar to each other compared to blog articles, which tend to vary in length and structure and topic and, and so on. Um, there's also a differentiation that I want to make between programmatic content for sites that, that have user-generated user content and sites that don't have user-generated content. So for example, I would not call an e-commerce online store, I would not call that programmatic SEO, even though there are online stores with lots of brands that have lots of pages. Um, at the same time, a, a UGC site, um, you know, that say something like a G2, which has a lot of software reviews, or TripAdvisor, which has travel reviews and local reviews, I would also not call that programmatic SEO. And that's where some people might disagree with me, even though these pages are programmatically created. To me, programmatic SEO mostly applies to sites that don't have inventory, like a product inventory, or user-generated content, but still create 
sites at scale. That's that would be my definition. I'm, I'd be happy to you know to to hear more. So the systematic creation of templated pages. Please, someone disagree with Kevin. Uh, Anne, you've uh, unmuted yourself. Yeah, no, I think what's interesting about programmatic SEO, defined as you have, Kevin, is that it becomes almost inaccessible to most SEOs practicing today. So I think the argument could be made to expand the definition so that more practicing SEOs feel enfranchised so what you've described, e-commerce sites that programmatically uh, generate inventory pages or CMSs that allow for meta descriptions and meta titles to be published without the hand of a human in, you know, in one way, if we define that also as programmatic SEO, then the techniques we might discuss today for how that can go wrong and how to uh, review them and optimize them at scale might also apply. That's a really good point because, well, I mean, I might disagree and say that it may not be programmatic SEO in the, in the, in the classic sense of it, but there are definitely programmatic elements that you as an SEO will inevitably incorporate, right? Meta descriptions like uh, title tags I want to pull in. I want to automatically pull in the business name and the, uh, the blog post title to automatically be the title tag. So that is a programmatic element. So I think those are things that I'm sure we're going to probably get into a little bit of a of debate about the values and the positioning of programmatic SEO. But to, to say that programmatic SEO doesn't apply or the elements of it or you know some kind of version of it doesn't apply to SEOs, I think that's definitely not the case. You're almost always trying to programmatically do something as an SEO so you don't have to do it manually. But then we kind of run to the balance. Like, is it like SEO automation or is that programmatic? I don't want to get into that. I don't want to split hairs. I really love all the points. Uh, and I, I, I hear the reasoning like from both sides. But I think I feel closer to uh, Kevin's position here because I think that programmatic SEO is a growth strategy. Like e-commerce is an essence. It's the core of their business to have those millions of pages. And yes, there is a programmatic element there. And yes, technical SEO is at core there. But I see programmatic SEO is finding an angle for your business where you can find something closely tied to your product or to your audience and step into that area to leverage that high potential growth and high scale growth, growth at scale, basically. And just to add to the initial definition, I think that it's not, not necessarily ongoing creation of the pages. It can be created at once and then run through the years just with uh, pro programmatically preset updates like pages come and go. Like if something new is added to the database, it adds to the programmatic asset. If something does not exist, it gets removed automatically. And the other thing I wanted to add is definitely the scale that we're talking about thousands and millions of pages yeah anna you, you actually shared before we started recording that um you've seen a website taken from uh, a few hundred thousand pages um indexed to several million pages so obviously there are benefits uh, to programmatic i think one of the challenges is actually deciding on what to automate um if we can use that term as well and what not um to 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 automate um so shall we have a little um discussion about that so shall we stick with you um for a second anna 
Um, what are a couple of examples of elements that you should automate, that you should utilize programmatic SEO for? And what's perhaps one thing that you absolutely shouldn't use programmatic for? Well, in, in my experience, when we talk about programmatic SEO asset per se, everything there is automated. Like everything, you preset the patterns, you preset the structure, you preset uh, even the sitemap generation. Uh, but obviously, it requires uh, the monitoring and the SEO audit. I was thinking that your question will lean more into examples of uh, programmatic SEO assets and like what can be created. Well, let's dive into that for a second. Yeah, yeah. I, I had two examples uh, of that. One uh, was actually came up on Brighton SEO last uh, September. And it was funny that the person who was presenting it, he didn't announce it as programmatic SEO because like, that was not the t- terminology or the angle. But what they did was actually pure programmatic SEO. They are a ticketing site and they have created uh, singer profiles. They bought databases and they have created uh, singer profiles. And this, similarly, as we saw, they were ranking with those profiles mostly for local singers or for someone least popular, but still amazing, an amazing concept, you know, like someone follows uh, someone, wants to read about this person, and then you show the tickets and the events of the of this particular person in that particular region. So I found that really interesting. And the second example is what we did is we are the cybersecurity company and we have created um a programmatic asset to compare open source packages for developers where we use databases to take all the relevant information. Plus we use our engine to look at security maintenance and vulnerabilities. And then we use our Intel formula to calculate the security score for the package. So I I just wanted to highlight the logic there that it can be an extension to your business. You just need to find where your audience is and tap into that opportunity and create it. Maybe it will be even topper level. Uh, maybe it will be awareness. But nonetheless, you just need to know your audience and then you will find the opportunity. I've certainly seen many comparison websites using uh, programmatic to compare different software packages. And um, it. Y- y- I would almost think that... Um, that's a highly competitive area and actually quite hard to achieve a lot of success in that. But perhaps there's a lot of search volume for that and a lot of opportunity there. Uh, Kevin, I know that you've had some background in that area. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, definitely want to speak to that. A quick quick segue into your previous question about automation. I think this is a really important differentiation to make. So I, I think that a lot of times when we talk about automation, we actually mean create creating at scale or, or you know, creating... creating um, uh, you know, kind of multiplying your efforts, if you will, where you once defined the parameters of a page, like the title, description, the, the content, the headings, images, and you rolled it out over thousands of different permutations and iterations. And that is somewhat different from automating certain elements. So one example, at G2, which you could argue, you know, has is a, is a marketplace, has programmatic SEO elements to it. Um, one of the most impactful tactics was to insert a variable in the meta titles for category pages that automatically updates. So that is what I would call true automation, right? It, it's you you once you define that in the back end, so to say, 
um, and it will automatically update itself every day or every week. And that can be a powerful element of SEO um, that, that is automated and programmatic at the same time. And so to answer your last question, David, um, again, I, I think it's it's probably the most scalable way to do SEO is, is programmatic SEO. And there are lots of different common recurring elements that we can influence, right? One is the title that we already spoke about. Another one are rich snippets or snippets in general. Then there's internal linking, content on the page. And then often there's some element of listings, right? At G2, we had with software products, which, which are the listings. You can optimize those as well. Um, for example, the information that's being displayed, the ratings, maybe some quotes from reviews, maybe maybe categories, tags, and so on and so on. So part of programmatic SEO that is really important is identifying all the elements that you can influence and you can change, and then thinking about, okay, which of those elements do we touch maybe once and then leave them as is, and which other elements have to continuously change, and then what are the automation workflows in the backend that we can define for them? It's dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really cool because you could do some. You could save yourself a heck of a lot of time. And it's a lot of things that we end up focusing on, because we understand the website because we created the website fundamentally. So we can do things like if you uh, if you add your address to the homepage, we can pick that up and add local business structure data market for you automatically. So like you end up with all these dynamic variables that you can sort of pick up on, and then automate, and that can save you a tremendous amount of time. And if you it's a, if it's in a controlled sort of environment. You usually don't end up with any, or I would say any, but you don't usually end up with a lot of like accuracy problems. And I think where you kind of get messed up, where, I, where I've seen people kind of get messed up is where, almost like with AI, and I don't, want to, I don't bring up AI now, but I guess I'll do it anyway. If you're using AI in a controlled environment, you're telling it, okay, take this paragraph and write a, write a header for it. So you're, it's in a controlled setting. If it's in an open setting where you're saying, here's a topic write me a blog post about it that's where i think things kind of get messy and if you're using if you're trying to create dynamic content and you're doing it in a way where it's very open-ended you're not giving it a very strict parameter then i think you end up with all sorts of inaccuracies you end up with things that aren't targeted you end up with all sorts of problems so i think it's important when you are doing things at the dynamic level to sort of create the environment and the borders and the context for it to operate in that makes sense i am also interested in double clicking on your your original question when should we maybe not use automation you know um morty i am in agreement with you before we uh started broadcasting you outed yourself as a programmatic curmudgeon and i think in this respect particularly sort of the the unlimited or the un restrained application of automation and content generation does have risks. Kevin, you published a piece in January about the bank rate and CNET examples. You know, I continue to think of where automation should not be used under the rubric of YMYL. If we're talking about financial advising or health advising, um, I think that programmatic could easily and inadvertently become a misinformation engine. I would agree with that. I, I think just blindly publishing auto automated content or generative AI content is very risky. Um, to me, the, the killer combination is AI plus humans. So having human fact checkers, editors, um, you know, people who make sure it's factually correct and also who publish the output is often not you know, written in a great way or, or, you know, it comes with flaws. And so um, 
to me, the question is, you know, how can you, like, how can we leverage AI or automation to to quickly create a draft that humans then uh, kind of bring over the finish line, uh, and again make sure they're factually correct. The 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 bank rate, CNET and credit cards come case is really interesting because the, and I don't know this for sure, right? But on 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 the side, I think it was CNET that published uh, like seventy five articles, and at least half of them, if not all of them, had factually incorrect information, sometimes down to the easiest, simplest level. Uh, I think one of them was a compound interest calculation that was just blatantly wrong. Um, and so I, th- I think that I don't think there was a lot of fact checking that went into this. And, and again, I don't know this for sure. I don't want to blame anyone or, or uh, you know, uh, throw shade at someone, but a, a human fact checker would have corrected that and would have caught that. So that to me is the important differentiation between generated content that works and it doesn't. And I don't think it was you barking in the, the background there. I wanted to add to the conversation, but my dog... Go for it. Go for it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, uh, I wanted to add to that and to say, like, if we're talking about millions of pages, I would definitely not go for dynamic content because it would be impossible to keep track of what is being produced there. And the cost of the arrow can be really uh, high. So the combination I found that works is using modifiers, it is definitely not providing uh, uniqueness as of like the, the, the grand uniqueness, but relying on data, if we're using data and we are showing data, uh, that is always the best because no one wants to consume programmatic content as in content. Usually it's some kind of like data or most recent information, something reliant on numbers. But then since Google has a hard time interpreting those graphs data, um, then providing a text description with modifiers helps with uh, the SEO side of things. So I would go for that kind of combination, but I would definitely not use uh, dynamic content for programmatic. That's too big of a risk. Yeah, I mean... um... I think I think you're all saying a similar kind of thing and actually leading on from each other. But by the way, hi to Merit and Olga. Um, you're both part of the SEO in 2023 series. You're watching us live. So thanks for joining us live. Um, if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, come and join us live for next time and ask some questions uh, if you can. Uh, majestic.com slash webinars. What um, I was going to say is actually it's probably worthwhile exploring tying what you're saying together. So. Um, Marty, you were talking about things get messy when you do things like uh, come up with a title and maybe give the AI the opportunity just to write an article. Um, Kevin, you were talking about perhaps actually using that as a first draft and then bringing humans in there as well. Anna, you were talking about the importance of data. Um, I'm finding that incorporating things like tables and um, uh, well-structured information into content will probably give you a better opportunity to, to rank. Um, so I, I guess, w- what are your thoughts on that? And also in relation to that, um, what um, is Google looking for at the moment for its SERP um, to, to, to best utilize that information and display it within the SERP? Um, a few nods there, Kevin. Do, do, do you want to start off on that one? Yeah, I love how you differentiate between structured and unstructured content, right? Structured content is so much easier to automate than unstructured content. And I would even, I would even challenge a little bit that unstructured content gets easier to create. I've seen some amazing stuff. I've done some tests with clients and uh, it gets better. Again, not perfect, not 
not something you would blindly publish, but much, much better. Uh, and so to me, it all comes back to user intent and understanding what people are really looking for. When, for example, I mean, let, let's go back to, to, to maybe G2. Um, people are looking for software reviews, but they're also looking to compare software. And essentially, they want to, they want to, they have very specific criteria in mind that they want to figure out to make a decision. Price is a good example, right? They, they might compare, let's say, um, MailChimp and ConvertKit, uh, and they want to understand for their specific audience, right? Say so they have 5,000 subscribers. What's the difference in price? That's a very specific user intent, but users might not search for that exact phrase, right? They might look for, you know, uh, MailChimp versus ConvertKit price or something along these lines. So the, the art is to identify these patterns. What are the key pieces of information that people are looking for? Um, and then see how you can programmatically add that that content or that information to pages. So at, at G2, for example, we invested a lot of time in our comparison and, and, and alternative pages. And, and seriously, like when with the designer through all the pieces of information, like what can we display here? What can we draw from our reviews? How can we optimize the review process to generate that data? And how can we how can we maybe you know combine different pieces of data to come to new information? So for example, what's an average price per subscriber for certain for for email automation software that is in my mind the key so user user intent breaking that down to key piece of information and then figure out how to bring that key piece of information to all of your programmatic pages i wanted to add on top of that on top of the intent uh that it is also very important to understand what is your added value there because when we talk about programmatic it is so easy to create something a combination of information but in the end, you as a portal, as a company, as a service, you don't add anything new to that. And you could find the same information in a, in a blog, for example. And if that happens, then obviously you have no chance to outrank human-generated content, right? Um, so, for example, in, in my case, the added element is the security expertise. So you can find all that information on other websites. It is scattered, right? You can find maintenance on one in one place. You can find downloads in the different place. But the added element there is the security expertise that we add that element and we also calculate that score that advises you or discourages you from using this specific uh, open source package and also offers you alternatives, the packages that perform the same function but have a better security score so I think like whenever someone um, even considers that strategy, you always need to think first, what is your audience? Uh, what can be interesting for them? Then looking at the intent and then thinking, can you add unique value through programmatic or somehow else so that you outrank your competitors? Like what's your specific angle there? One of the things where I think it's really interesting with that and talking to your point and to Kevin's point is where the expertise demands a certain type of language structure. So for example, Google's talked about in the product review updates, and it's one of the, in, in the last one, the February, 2023 update, I've kind of seen this come out in a couple of cases where they want firsthand experience. And the, the language structure when you actually have firsthand experience is very, very different than when you programmatically build something or you have no actual experience and you're just lying. Um, and I think Google's able to pick up on those language structures that's literally what machine learning is for. And now that becomes, okay, great. I might be able to offer unique value. Let's say all things being equal, I can offer unique value through programmatic content. 
but you still can't mimic the language structure with programmatic content. And now what? So I think it's really, you have to be really, really careful, even though you might be able to offer unique value, but being able to understand the ecosystem and where that is and where that isn't applicable. By the way, one thing you could do is you could build programmatic content to try it out and see what sticks. I mean, Colt Sliver did that with, um, he took Python and Wix Velo. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a code stack. And he basically built up a website in order to see what would stick. And it's how, you ever go into Search Console and you see, okay, I thought I was going to rank for these keywords and get impressions for these keywords, and now I have, but I, instead I have impressions for these keywords because Google understood me differently than I thought it would. So he used programmatic content to spin up a website in order to see how did Google interpret the website, and now what should I do with this thing? Did I did I get it right? Did I not get it right? Should I pivot? So I think you can experiment with programmatic content in that way. But I still think at the end of the day, you have to be really, really careful how what Google's trying to do in the ecosystem, that programmatic content, even though you might be able to have unique value, is never going to be able to, to do. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by the example you gave, Kevin, of proactively restructuring the review forms on G2 to solicit data that's proprietary that can be used to service these programmatic plays. Anna, when we talked about the example that you've executed at Sneak, you know, this is, we're traditionally thinking about using APIs to plug into external data sources for our programmatic plays. Uh, I um, am intrigued, however, by thinking about, well, um, how can we generate our own data and then be the only source of these types of information. I work on a national jobs directory website, and we've been having conversations about what can we, you know, what data points can we extrapolate from the information that we have access to um, that no other site can replicate. Um, particularly, the, this website has an issue with uh job category pages for very high in-demand uh, but infrequently offered job types where they're thin and become de-indexed. Um, talking about things like, can we calculate the rate of applicants per position in a given field? Can we calculate the number of positions in this field at this particular job title that are typically on offer in any given year? So I, I think it was... It's a, an, a new angle for programmatic that I'd love to see more examples published about where we didn't plug into ex external databases, but instead farmed our own data. Yeah, to that point, unique data is always is always king, right? And I think especially in these hyper-competitive verticals, like JobSert is incredibly competitive. Um the more unique insights you can provide, the more of a competitive advantage you get. I think it's that simple. Uh, of course, the insights need to make sense. They need to be interesting for people. But uh, I very much agree that a lot of times there is people just use the data that they have available, but they don't think about how does one and one equal three? How can we generate more insights out of the data that we have by combining it? So what do you do when you've published a couple of million web pages and they're, they're doing okay. Um, but you just can't actually maybe hit the top three in the SERP and you, you, you're not actually bringing in that traffic, uh, that, that, that volume traffic. Um, so how you, how do you actually identify the opportunities? How do you actually see which pages, um, probably you should be tweaking? Um, so do you use, for example, programmatic to, um, to, to look at the existing SERP for all your target keyword phrases and to identify what other sites are doing better than you and how you can improve? 
I wanted to answer that uh, with one of the biggest advantages of programmatic SEO is that you can actually do SEO A-B testing and a lot of A-B testing at scale, as well as conversion testing. Uh, so that's how. I don't think you need to focus on specific pages and where they rank. You need to focus on the large scale. Is everything indexed? Is everything technically correct? Is everything being crawled and visited by Google? But then if those bases are covered, you have a huge playground to experiment with. Just a small change or tweak of the SEO title that can improve CTR by 1% or 2% can amount to a significant increase in organic traffic as a whole. The same goes with conversion. Like literally we tweaked the CTA and we saw 150% increase in conversion. Of course, the conversion was very low before because there was no CTA, but just adding some element or like, for example, there was a button CTA and we added breach text CTA. We added text that explains what happens to you after you sign up. Tremendous results. So that's one of the things that I think you do after you've launched it and after it's working. So sticking with your titles uh, example there, Anna, um, obviously you wouldn't necessarily want to tweak all of your page titles and millions of pages at the same time. Um, so do you just pick a certain number and then do a, a split test based upon that? And also, where do you take your ideas from? For example, do you use PPC as a way to actually build ideas for new page titles? Fantastic question. So first of all, uh, in order for it to be statistically correct, uh, there is a certain amount of traffic and certain amount of pages that you need for that group. Um, from the top of my mind, I think it was uh, starting at 40, 50K clicks. And for us, it would amount to a lot of pages because some of them get uh, below 10 clicks a month, but it's it's like the the volume. Uh, that drives that. And I would be inspired by the SERP. I would generally be inspired by PPC, but also by the SERP, just uh, Googling the keyword that the page uh, ranks for, seeing what are the titles in there, trying to understand what is the user intent. And for example, should it be just the package name, like uh, uh, learn more about this package, or should it be this package name health analysis, or this package name health analysis and maintenance? like trying to understand if people are searching for just the name or they are searching for something specific around it, uh, what are the results that Google shows and try to experiment there. And then it would be split testing. And I don't, I don't think there is anything wrong in uh, large volumes and like implementing it on one half of your side and the other half of the side. Uh, it's fine. It's just the uh, learnings. And okay, so that's page titles there. Um, obviously, the big win opportunities are potentially uh, the page elements that are actually taken by Google and displayed in the SERP. Um, so what trends are we seeing in terms of what is displayed in the SERP? And what are good areas within a page to be testing from a programmatic perspective? Yeah, I, I think another one to add there is internal linking um, that I think is absolutely critical, especially if you we're talking about millions of pages. Google needs to find all of these pages and only XML sitemaps might not be enough, maybe initially for an initial crawl. But if you want Google to come back and recrawl pages over and over, you need a, a, a very like a, a very robust internal linking structure. And that is not super trivial. Um, 
and and then content is another one, right? If uh, if you have you know some some programmatic content that is not super valuable, sometimes you need a bit more information for Google to differentiate all the different pages. Uh, I'm trying to talk about a client without giving them away too much, but there there's there's a company that I worked with that basically crawls um, the web through RSS feeds and then provides provides you feeds of content. And they can create those feeds for all sorts of topics you can imagine. Anything from you know politics to finance, startups, SEO, marketing, you name it. And for them, it's super easy to spin up millions of pages that Google can index with all of these different feeds of content. Uh, but then the, the key question is, how can you add more content insights, whether it's uh, structured or unstructured, to differentiate all of these pages a bit more for Google and not just have this displayed in the feed of content. So that, those are some of the things, internal linking and the actual on-page content that I found to be most impactful when we speak about millions of programmatic pages. Well, I was going to just go back on Kevin's point really quick. It's a really big problem because crawling is, is or indexing rather, is getting much more difficult. Google is getting much pickier. And, and, and the, this, you know, the alignment of all these programmatic pages increases the chance of Google's not going to crawl all of these pages. So doing things like differentiating and even just differentiating in headers, making some sort of clear differentiation and making the page a bit clearer for Google to understand could have enormous payoffs. Like, yeah, you, you there are things where you can do to add, you know, really unique content to get Google to see that this page is unique and then crawl and index the page. But sometimes just doing small little tweaks to the page can really be a big difference. And you're working with millions of pages. It's probably much easier to do that and see, okay, great. Let's see what happens now. Did Google now index the pages? Great, we're done. Then actually going through all those pages by hand and actually finding some really unique content to add. So as Adam mentioned before, you can really experiment, see, okay, does this work? Try one thing, next thing. Does this work? Next thing, does that work? And take it step by step. But it's going to be something that if you're doing programmatic content at scale, I would imagine that you're, as time goes on, it's going to get harder and harder and harder for Google to decide, I'm going to index all of that. I'd be curious to hear Anne's point about crawling and indexing. My brain had already gone to bringing up the very controversial subject of zero-click search and how the widespread adoption of structured data in the manner we've just been discussing could end up positioning many of these sites that are our clients or our employers to have their content used without generating a click or transaction. Um, uh, in terms of crawling and indexing, <laughs> this, in my experience, goes particularly in service of understanding the trends that are affecting coverage. So, what kinds of patterns can we identify um, that are distinguishing between the programmatic pages that are getting indexed and aren't? And for an effort like this at scale, you've got to do that in some um, um, structured manner. And then supporting internal linking. Again, you know, you mentioned this, Kevin, as a non-trivial issue. This is something I think that is the hardest struggle and how to devise and implement and maintain a large-scale internal linking strategy, particularly because internal linking is not a sexy topic and can often um, be difficult to prioritize. I, I feel like this is one of the arguments that I bang my head against the wall um, when, when talking to clients 
about trying to do something to, to generate incremental traffic growth. And I say, let's go back to fundamentals. How are we doing with internal linking health? And that's like not fun. And in terms of the zero click um, um, subject that you um, started the year, your, your thoughts with, um, is there anything that programmatic can do to identify which URLs are actually uh, resulting in um, resulting well being displayed in the SERP, but not resulting in any traffic at all, and therefore actually doing things to uh, perhaps um, try and increase uh, the amount of brand presence in these results, um, so that even though you don't actually receive any traffic, um, you're um, improving your brand notoriety as a result of the the content that people see. I like Anna am an on SERP research devotee. So I think it's really important to keep your eyeballs on what the SERP looks like and on the devices and in the settings in which our data shows our users are searching. Uh, I work for uh, a publisher that uh, the majority of their traffic comes from very short tail animal searches. And the SERPs have changed very dramatically with the introduction of uh, VR in particular. And I was just thinking yesterday, looking at Bing AI and how the SERPs in Bing are evolving to display source credit in a way that has not traditionally been as visible in rich results in these types of SERPs. Um, So I have somewhat of a pessimistic view on the viability of a brand visibility play, particularly on Google. That kind of really brings up the whole issue of, you know, how you go about targeting longer tail or more, I'll call them more nuanced kind of queries and nuanced kind of information with programmatic SEO. And is, is the Google ecosystem sort of being steered in a way where they don't really want you to win with long tail? They, they, they want the user to be pushed through. There's a, you go to the SERP, everyone talks about all the different SERP features, but if you, to me, if you go to the SERP, you'll find probably if you go through the page, three or four different ways that Google's trying to filter out the query, whether it be through people also ask or all these related searches or, or the, the bubble filters at the top of the SERP or broaden this search, refine this search. They literally call it refine this search. There, there's all sorts of ways. The SERP is all about Google trying to say, we know you search for a, a short tail keyword, but you probably meant something long tail by it. Let's move you there. Yeah, I love that call out, Morty. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that Google tries to get people to a to a very clear uh, expression of what people want as quickly as possible. I do think, though, that there's a, there's a lot of... Op- I think the, all, most of the potential right now in, in SEO is probably in, in, in long tail and mid tail. And the reason is exactly that the shorthead, Google basically fires all cannons at people when they look for something super shortheady, right? It's like all the SERP features, buy something, uh, search for it locally, uh, navigate, here's some brands. Oh, you want something else? It sounds like, you know, like a, like a desperate drug dealer who just tries to get off some stuff. Um, I'm being pedantic here. But uh, th- the point I want to make is that I think Prochromatic is, 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 a, is a huge opportunity to target long tail searches that express a clear user intent. Um, the challenge is that it's much more difficult to measure. The more long tail you go, the more Google samples data in Search Console. So getting understanding what queries you rank for becomes a real problem. 
Um, and then the other the other side of the coin is just understanding because that is such a problem, right? Is understanding what key, long tail keywords actually to target. So in some cases, you have to run a shotgun approach where you just launch a bunch of pages based on your best understanding of the target audience, gut feeling, and then maybe some qualitative information like you know calls with sales or customer success or something like that. And then you see if those pages actually drive meaningful traffic and convert, and then you scale them. So this this problem that more more call out here is a critical fundamental one. There is an opportunity with programmatic SEO, but it isn't yet this clearly streamlined, super straightforward approach. There's a bit of a leap of faith people have to take. I feel that there's um, many um, other angles and conversations that we can have in relation to programmatic SEO, and perhaps we could try and get the the team together again for part two, if. <laughs> If possible, because um, I'm, I'm sure we can keep on going for a long time. But um, how about if we close up with um, one final great tip um, from everyone about programmatic SEO? Uh, maybe just a couple of ideas um, in relation to to what type of tip you could share. Um, maybe what's one thing that uh, you haven't really used programmatic for, but you intend to use programmatic for uh, at some point over the coming year? And uh, another thought is. How should um, you be working more closely with other marketing teams, maybe paid search teams, maybe uh, entirely different departments um, with programmatic SEO? How should you be educating them about programmatic SEO to, to, to better work more effectively together? There, there are lots of different angles that you can take on this, um, but, but what would you share as a closing tip about programmatic SEO? Uh, Anne, shall we start off with you? So uh, in terms of which other teams you should be working with, uh, I'm thinking about on those websites that are primarily UGC. The issue that I've seen is there are not always sufficient controls around the structure and nature in which um, UGC content can be built. And so that becomes an issue at scale that the data points you want to draw on for a programmatic play are um, only intermittently present. So trying to build better relationships with the folks who uh, interact with your users, um, whether it is a client or whether it is a customer, and helping work with them to think through ways to modify the interface to get higher quality data out of UGC. Superb. Thanks, Anne. Anna, um, what would be your closing thoughts? I have three closing points. The first one is uh, know your business and your audience and try to think out of the box. Don't only think about high competitive keywords uh, in your niche. Obviously, you need to target them, but try to think about this other strategies they, that can catch your audience somewhere where their interests are. Second thing is have uh, something unique, unique value you can add with your programmatic asset. And lastly, uh, focus on indexing and focus on optimizing your assets, assets structure. Try to think about how will the user journey look and how you can interlink those uh, pages. It uh, can be HTML sitemaps, which shouldn't be like sitemap per se. It can be a directory. It can be grouped by a certain factor, like popular, not popular, trending, maintained, not maintained. 
try to be creative about uh, coming up with that factor that groups those pages and create a sitemap on the asset to na- for Google to navigate through it. It can be related pages, and that can be also dynamic that pulls them in a certain pattern or manner. But this was proven in my experience to be the key to unlocking that indexing potential and moving from 300,000 pages indexed to 2 million pages indexed and constantly adding. Morty, can you beat three closing tips? I, sh- sure. Three good ones or just like three? <laughs> um, I think 20. Um, I, I, I'm going to agree and say that the team that you really want to work the closest, I think is going to be your customer success team or customer support team. You know, you're pulling in all this traffic and it's great, but is it really effective? What are the pain points that the user are facing after? Because the point is not really to bring in the traffic. The point is then to figure out like what's working for your customer base and is what you're doing programmatically actually working and being effective. So I don't think I'm saying anything novel on that, but I think it's like very, very important when you're working at scale to be able to say, okay, take a step back and what's actually working in terms of where I think things are going with all this. I think what you're going to see to go kind of pivot back on the long tail um, you know, conversation, I think where programmatic SEO is a hard time with is in programmatic content in general is where you have long tail keywords and the competition, the, the level of content out there is particularly nuanced, right? So you have like very niche um, blogs or very niche websites talking in a very nuanced experience kind of way. And I think what you're going to end up seeing is I think you're going to see mass adoption of AI, but I think the people who are going to do this effectively are going to use the AI as a foundation for creating the content. In other words, so I don't need to hire five new writers. What I can do is I can have AI spin up the foundation of the content and then I can take it from there. So it's like almost like a, I hate to put it this way, a glorified editor kind of writer position. In other words, you're gonna have the content, you could have the AI spin out the foundation of the content and then be able to compete, possibly be able to compete in these very nuanced niches by supporting that foundation of content that you built programmatically with a little bit more of a hands-on approach. So it's sort of a quasi-programmatic application of AI. I think that might have a good chance of being very successful, building out content at scale, building out content dynamically and programmatically. It'll be interesting to see if that really does and that really can compete with, you know, if with niche specific websites who are doing this all quote unquote by hand. But I think that's where we're heading off to. And I don't know what that actually is going to look like because I don't know how the Google's going to handle that in the algorithm, but that's where we're going to end up, I think. Quasi programmatic. Love it. Kevin, what are your closing thoughts? Yeah, I, I want to build on top of what Morty said. Um, we're now entering a phase where we see tools pop up that allow us to create programmatic content in minutes, not hours or days or weeks, minutes, and most of it at a, at a decent quality. We're already there. There are tools out there that can do that for you, relatively cheap even. And the big bottleneck then is less the creation part. It's much more how to how to keep the quality high. In my mind, it's all about quality. And that is not something we can yet solve with machines or, or automation. That is something that still has to happen with humans. And so the big question is, how do you, when you can create thousands, hundred thousands, maybe millions of pages relatively quickly and cheaply, how do you quality assure all that stuff, right? And so there's some approaches where you sample or where you try to have, you know, mass fact checkers and all that kind of stuff. But that in my mind is is a is a problem. We'll solve that problem. I'm pretty confident that in the next probably, I don't know, 24 months, um, don't, don't quote me on that, but 
that you know in the foreseeable future will be able to 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 use some sort of a um, large, large language large language model to make sure that information is at least ninety nine percent factually correct. I think that's a solvable problem. Uh, but until then, that's going to be the major bottleneck. And then after that, the question is, what's what's how to differentiate yourself? Is it going to be design? Is it going to be unique insights, as we spoke about before? Is it going to be some sort of you know um, scaling human input, right? Like how do you attach an author to programmatic content? Is another problem that's unsolved yet. So these are the problems that I see in the foreseeable future and long term. But I think what a lot of people don't realize yet is that we are at a place where we can create a lot of content at a decent quality for very little money. And that changes the game tremendously in my mind. Don't quote Kevin, everyone, but he said 24 months. <laughs> <laughs> I've been your host, David Ben. You've been listening to the Majestic SEO podcast with Anna. Uh, Anna, would you like to share with the listener where people can find out more about you? Uh, I have a website called uh, anatuss.com. It's Wix website. <laughs> So check it out. Uh, but also on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Anna USS, just find me. Superb. Thanks for joining. And Anne? I run dark. Um, but if you want to connect with me, I'm most active in the Women in Tech SEO Slack community. Superb. Thank you, Anne. And Marty? Um, I'm on Twitter. So I would just go to Barry Schwartz's Twitter feed and you can see me commenting and harassing him most of the day. <laughs> Great stuff. And Kevin? But uh, kevin-indic.com is where you find everything about them. Lovely stuff. Well, thanks so much for everyone, um, panelists, viewers, listeners. If you want to join us next time, sign up at majestic.com slash webinars. And of course, check out our other series at seoin2023.com. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.